humility is a tricky thing, isn't it? Uh, the minute you think you have it, you almost assuredly don't. <laughs> and yet, throughout Scripture, uh, we see that it is something that we are called to. It is something that God, and we're going to see this in our passage, are called to live humble lives. Uh, we saw at the beginning of chapter 2 last week, when Hunter did a great job kicking us off in chapter 2, uh, what that looks like in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is a great picture of what a humble Christian looks like. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to begin working through one of the most well-known passages in Philippians that gives us the ultimate example of humility in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's important to recognize that while Jesus is our example, and this passage calls us to look at Jesus as our example, Jesus is so much more than simply just an example. Uh, we don't adopt this mindset that we're going to look at this morning. We don't live a humble life simply because we look at Jesus and then try to copy him in our own strength. We adopt this mindset as we renew our minds in the truths of Scripture and as we surrender to the Holy Spirit and as we pray and ask God to change us. We saw a few weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 11, how we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So yes, he is our example. Yes, he is what we look to. Yes, he is the standard that we try to emulate in our lives. But he also enables us to follow that example as we live dependent lives on him. So let's do this. Let's read all of chapter number two to set the stage for us this morning. And then we are going to jump into verses five through eight. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to open it up. Turn to Philippians. We are going to begin reading chapter two, verse number one. And we will work all the way through chapter number two as we read it this morning. The Bible says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent in one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. 
children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be encouraged by news of you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. I wonder if he had the Rona. <laughs> However, God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in honor. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Let's pray. Father, we... Just thank you so much for who you are. And Lord, as we look into this passage, it's my heart and my prayer that we would have eyes of faith to behold this wondrous reality that we're going to see this morning. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be so used to what we're going to look at this morning that we miss it. I pray that your spirit would awaken our hearts to this wondrous truth. The creator, God, became a man and died for our sin. Lord, my words are going to fall utterly short of helping us see how amazing this reality is. So I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that your spirit would grab the attention of our distracted minds and distracted hearts. I pray that your spirit would awaken us to behold this beauty that we will see. Help us to not be enamored by so many lesser things. Help us not to be full on so many lesser things, but help us to see and to be filled with awe and wonder and adoration at the incarnation of God. And I pray that as a result, we would, like we are challenged to in verse 5, adopt the same attitude to think the same way, to live the same way. We ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, verses 5 through 11, <coughs> excuse me, is one of the most well-known passages about Jesus. And given the way that it's laid out, uh, many wonder and think that maybe this was a hymn that the early church used that maybe Paul included here in chapter 2, or maybe Paul actually wrote this as a hymn as he was writing out chapter number 2. Um, if you look at the way it's laid out in your Bible, we can tell that it's written as a poem 
And whenever we see this type of literature in Scripture, that tells us that one of the goals of this passage is for our worship. It's for our adoration. We should read this passage and be wowed. It can be used in our worship of God. It's meant to stir up our affection and our adoration for Jesus. This passage is also very rich in theology and doctrine, which we're going to be looking at as well, which tells us that good worship is always grounded in rich theology. Uh, But this passage is also primarily meant to shape the way we live our lives. That's why verse 5 says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. When we look at this passage, we're meant to be wowed. It's meant to serve to stir up our adoration, but it's also meant to serve for our emulation. We're to copy it. We're to adopt the same attitude. This attitude of Christ, the way Jesus lived, is supposed to be the mark of how we live as well. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to work through the first half of this passage. We're going to go from verses 5 through verses number 8, and we're going to look at the humility of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. We're going to see three examples of this in verses 6, 7, and 8. And the first example of Jesus' humility that we're to adopt is Jesus was selfless. Jesus was selfless. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says, Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, in order to lay the groundwork for how this verse shows us the selfless nature of Jesus, we need to work through this verse line by line. This verse starts by telling us that Jesus existed in the form of God. Now, this phrase touches on the pre-existence of Jesus, who existing in the form. This Paul touches on the pre-existence of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. Jesus has always existed. The phrase, in the form of, means Jesus is the same nature, or he is the same essence of God. It doesn't mean he just looked like him. It means he was him. Paul isn't saying Jesus showed up and he looked like God. When he says, what he is saying is, when Jesus came to earth, he continued to be the very same essence of God that he always has been before the beginning of time. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him, his son, Jesus, heir of all things, and made the universe through him. So we see God created the world through Jesus. That tells us Jesus existed before the beginning of time. He says the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us says, Jesus is God. He's the same exact expression of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is God. John chapter 17, verse 5. We see Jesus praying, and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you, before the world existed. So what these passages expound on, they're expounding on what Paul is touching on here in Philippians chapter 2. From eternity past, Jesus was fully God. Jesus Christ is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. Jesus has always existed and has always shared all the attributes of deity because he is God. Colossians 2.9 spells it out very plainly. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now, sometimes people may look at verse 6 and ask, well, is he God or is he just the form of God? 
But to say Jesus is the form of God is to say he is God. He is the exact nature. He is the exact expression. All the attributes, all the form that makes God God, Jesus has as well. So to say Jesus is the form of God is to say Jesus is God. Church history has been filled with debates over the nature of Jesus. One of the most well-known was the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Arius believed that Jesus was the first and greatest created being. Now, you can tell right there, oh, that doesn't sound right, because it's not. Uh, but the biblical position is that Jesus is fully God. That position won the day at the Council of Nicaea, and they decided for church, Orthodox faith, according to what the Bible says, is Jesus is God. He is the same essence as God the Father. And for us, what we have to wrestle with today is sometimes you'll hear people say, well, Jesus was just a good teacher, or he was a prophet, or he was definitely a good person, but we can't relegate Jesus to simply being a good teacher, or simply a prophet, or simply a good person, because he is God. Like, if Jesus claimed what he claimed and wasn't God, he'd be a liar or a lunatic, C.S. Lewis tells us. That kind of boots him out of the good person category. But then how do you explain the miracles that he did that have been verified throughout history? He's God. That's how you explain it. Jesus is God. This is why in the next line of verse 6, we learn that Jesus did not consider being equal with God as something to be exploited because he's equal with God. Now, this is where we begin to see the humility of Jesus. To Jesus, equality with God, being God, was not something to be exploited. It wasn't something to be seized. Some translations will say to be, to be held onto or to be grasped. He didn't consider equality with God as something to, to grasp and to hold onto. The idea is Jesus did not leverage the position of his deity for his own personal gain. He did not hold on to his equality with God as something that he could use for his own advantage. This is why our first thought this morning shows us Jesus was selfless. Think about it. If anyone in the universe could have rightfully leveraged their position of power, it would have been Jesus. I mean, he was God. <laughs> People were being rude to him or being mean to him or doubting his ministry. He could have been like, fool, I made you. <laughs> but he did not consider his deity, he did not consider that something to be exploited. He was so selfless in his nature that he didn't use his position as God to his own advantage. Jesus did not consider being God as, getting, as grounds for getting what he wanted. Instead, he used his deity, he used his power, he used his position to serve and to love. He used his position as God to live a perfectly sinless life so that you and I could experience the love of the Father, so that you and I could be one back to God. Now, I know we can be so used to this that it just seems academic, or maybe it just seems a little bit unreal because our hearts are so distracted and we're so used to being impressed by so many lesser things. But I want to challenge you this morning. Let the wonder of this reality sink into your heart. Jesus became man. God did not use his position for his own gain. He came down to this earth and lived a perfectly sinless, a perfectly selfless life so that we could be redeemed back to the Father. This is such an astonishing truth that Jesus, God himself, would model such selflessness. 
And then Paul says, now adapt that same attitude. So the question for us is, do we live our lives with our hands open in generosity like Jesus? Or do we try to grasp everything we can to make our own life easier? Paul unpacks this idea a little bit more in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. He says, now you who are strong, you have a position, you who have power, you are, who are strong have an obligation to bear, the, to bear the weakness of those without strength. And not only to please yourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So what Paul is doing here in Romans and in Philippians, he's encouraging us to live our lives for the good of others, just like Jesus did. We don't have a position, we don't have authority, we don't have influence, we don't have power so that we can serve ourselves. God gives us those things so that we can serve others. It's very clear in Romans 15 and here in Philippians chapter 2. God does not elevate people so that they can use that position for their own good or for their own image. He says, I have given you this position, I have given you this strength, I have given you this power so that you can serve others. So that you can do what is good for your neighbor. And ultimately so that we can help other people know the love of the Father. God did not give us influence so that we can use it for our advantage, so that we can grasp it for ourselves, but so that we can help others experience the love of the Father. Jesus was selfless. But more than just selfless, we see in verse 7, Jesus was a servant. Look at the first part of verse 7. It says, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form, there's that word again, of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Jesus, God, emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Now another question we have to ponder. What does it mean when it says that Jesus emptied himself? Now we have to be careful that we give this a correct definition so we don't say something that's incorrect. There are many who would say that when Jesus emptied himself, he emptied himself of his deity so that he could be a man. Uh, there's an old hymn many of us would be familiar with, And Can It Be? That hymn has a line in it that says, He emptied himself of all but love. The problem is that's not true. If Jesus emptied himself of everything except for love, then he would have ceased to have been God. And he could not have won our salvation. And so what does it mean when it says Jesus emptied himself? To empty himself or to make himself of no reputation, as some translations render it, means he emptied himself of the visible manifestation, the rights, the privileges that he had as God. He did not cease to become God, but he restrained the nature of his deity. That's why in John 17, when he prays, Let me, uh, give me your glory like I had before the beginning of time. And then we see how all of a sudden, man, we see the radiance of Jesus come together and uh, Peter, James, and John, they're there. and They're just kind of blown away. That's what it means when we say he emptied himself. He restrained the nature of his deity, but he did not abandon his deity. The second line in verse 7 further defines this for us by saying, he emptied himself by becoming a servant and being born in the likeness of man. Pastor and writer uh, Kent Hughes said, the negative action of emptying himself is actually defined by Christ's positive action in the incarnation. 
So when it says he emptied himself, it's not saying he got rid of his deity so that he could become a man. It's saying, no, he emptied himself of the privileges that he had as God. He emptied himself of the rights that he had as God. He humbled himself and became a man. On Thursday evenings, there's a group of us that are going through the book Gentle and Lowly, which unpacks Christ's heart for us. And in the book, author Dane Ortland talks about Jesus becoming a man. And to help us understand this picture, he says, Jesus would have woke up with bedhead. <laughs> I mean, he had pimples at 13. He never would have appeared on the cover of Men's Health. Isaiah 53, 2 tells us that he looked like an average guy. His visage, his face was that so nobody would recognize him or think he was attractive. He came as a normal man to normal men. He knows what it means to be thirsty, to be hungry, to be despised, to be rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. Jesus was a man. God became a man. I mean, if he stepped on a Lego, he would have seen galaxies spinning in a heavenly dance. <laughs> he knows what it means to hurt, to feel. He was a man. But he did not cease to become God. But he became a man. And this passage tells us that he became a man and a servant. Jesus was a servant. Mark 10, 45 says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. There we see his deity is not something to be exploited. Being equal to God is not something he's leveraging for his own gain. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Now in verse 7, we see the word form again. This signifies that Jesus was actually a servant. Jesus didn't come to just look the part so we could be impressed. He actually was a servant. Just like Jesus is God, Jesus also was a servant while he walked on this earth. Christ did not exchange the form of God for the form of a servant. Instead, he manifested the form of God in the form of a servant. He laid aside the prerogatives of being God in order to take on the limitations of being a human being. I mean, think about it. Jesus voluntarily chose not to exercise all his rights as God so that he could come, live as a man, and experience what we experience so that he could serve us. Again, we need to pause and just let this sink in for a moment. The creator of all that is became a servant. Now, there are plenty of passages in the Gospels that would demonstrate the servant heart of Jesus, but I think John 13 captures Jesus' heart and action so well. John 13, verses 1 through 5 says this, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I mean, what an amazing picture there. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that he had tied around him. Washing people's feet in the New Testament was servant's work. 
I mean, this was a dirty job nobody wanted to do. And this wasn't just servant's work. This was like the lowest level of servant's work. I mean, we think about washing feet now, and we think that's nasty, and it, it was. Imagine walking on a dirty road without your Nikes, just in your sandals. I mean, that's pretty nasty. Washing people's feet in the New Testament was servant's work. And according to culture, if you had a party or you had a get-together, you had people over to your house, you had to make sure that there was somebody there to wash your guest's feet. To not do it would have been rude. This was the custom. But the disciples, as they were getting ready for the Passover meal, none of them took it on themselves to make sure that the servant's work was done. I mean, how like us is that? We all kind of avoid the dirty work, hoping somebody else will do it. But in his final moments, Jesus humbles himself, wraps a towel of service around him, and assumes the form of a servant. My prayer is that the Lord would give us fresh eyes and tender hearts to be filled with the wonder at this. Jesus, the creator of all that is. Jesus made those feet. He made that water, and here he is getting down, using him to wash. His disciples' feet, who he knew, they're all going to abandon me. The Bible says, it, right before this, it was already in, Satan had already filled the heart of Judas, and yet Jesus washes his feet. And as we're amazed at God becoming a man and serving others, let's adopt this same attitude and assume the form of a servant, like what we heard preached last week. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what it looks like to be selfless. That's what it looks like to be a servant. So we see Jesus was selfless. He didn't leverage his position for his own gain, but for the benefit of others. Jesus was a servant. And lastly, we see Jesus was sacrificial. Verse, the middle of verse 7 picks up a new sentence, and it says in verses 7 and 8, it's one sentence, it says, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Now, this is the low point in verses 6 through verses number 11. So far in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, we've seen this downward progression in humility. Next week, we're going to see the upward progression in exaltation. But I want us to think for a minute how every aspect of Jesus' life was marked with humility. I mean, he was born in a stable, a feeding trough, in a tiny little town called Bethlehem. Not in a great city like Rome or Jerusalem or Alexandria, the God of the universe comes to this little obscure town in Bethlehem and is born in a stable. He lived the majority of his life, 30 years of his life, in obscurity as a blue-collar worker. And when he did start his ministry, he was known for loving people that were unlovable and humbly serving others. And then he died as a criminal between two criminals. And he did all this voluntarily. Verse 8 says, it doesn't say that he was humbled by others. It says he humbled himself. This was Jesus' decision. He chose to empty himself. He willingly obeyed the will of the Father to the point it cost him his own life. And he didn't just die any death. He died on a cross. Jesus suffered the most vile death imaginable at the time. Crucifixion was so horrible that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified under Roman law. Like this was so 
barbaric that even the Romans who would carry out this type of sentence were like, we're not even going to do this to our own citizens. This is how barbaric it was. One commentary I read this past week pointed out <laughs> that in polite Roman society, mentioning the cross was an obscenity. It was like saying something foul. Like, you don't talk about that in polite Roman society. It was so barbaric and unthinkable. And yet Jesus willingly endured the physical pain and the agony of the cross. He endured such barbaric treatment and death. But he also willingly suffered the wrath of God as he became sin for us. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. Literally stripped naked mocked, beaten, crucified, punished for our sins, abandoned by God. That's why on the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is the Lord of life willingly suffering death. Jesus willingly allowed himself to be abandoned by God. Imagine the perfect fellowship that they had for all of eternity now broken for our sin. Imagine the anguish of soul that Jesus must have endured. He had perfect fellowship with God for all of eternity. And yet on that moment as he hung out on the cross, as God pours out the wrath that our sin justly deserved, that perfect fellowship is broken. And Hebrews 12, too, gives us an amazing picture of this. It says, for the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. For the joy before him, Jesus humbly obeyed the will of the Father so that we could have life. Luke twenty-two forty-two says, Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus willingly said, I will do what the Father is calling me to do. He willingly humbled himself and obeyed, even though it meant dying on a cross, dying for our sin. Paul says in Romans 5, verses 6 through 9, for while we were still helpless, and that's a good, <laughs> that's a good word to describe our state apart from Christ. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps some might even dare to die. But newsflash, none of us are good. But God proves his own love. That word proves means to showcase. God demonstrates. God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still helpless and lost in our sin, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath. Jesus absorbed that wrath for us. Yes, Jesus was selfless. Yes, Jesus was a servant. But Jesus was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice so we can be redeemed. And Paul tells us, adopt this same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. It's an attitude of sacrifice. It's this lifestyle that willingly sacrifices so that other people can re be redeemed back to the Father and experience His love. It's a lifestyle that does put others first. 
It's a lifestyle that's like, yes, I'll take care of my own needs, but I'm also just as much as I want my own needs to be taken care of, I'm going to take care of other people's needs too. It's a lifestyle of sacrifice, of service, of being totally and completely selfless. This is the type of life that we're called to. We're called to adopt the same type of mindset. We don't only think about ourselves, but we think about others. We're called to adopt the mindset of a servant. We exist to serve other people. I exist to serve you. You exist to serve each other. We don't leverage our position for our own edification, but for the benefit of others. We're called to adopt a mindset of sacrifice. We give so that others can live. After Jesus washes his disciples' feet in John 13, he gave them some instructions and an amazing promise. Let's go back to John 13, pick it up in verse number 12. And when Jesus had washed their feet, he put on his outer clothing and he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example so that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Our flesh will often look at this type of mindset and think, boy, that's a miserable way to live. <laughs> sounds so hard. It doesn't sound fun. But that is not true. Jesus said when we live this way, we are blessed. You go and look up that word blessed in the Greek, you know what it means? Happy. If you know these things, you will live a happy life if you do them. What's the big theme of Philippians? A joy-filled life in Jesus. It's funny how the very things that we often avoid to be happy, Jesus says those are the very things that bring true happiness. So do you want to be happy? Do you want to live a joy-filled life? Do you want to be blessed? Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing picture and example